0: open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 18. I was in college in my senior year, or I don't know if it was, I had two senior years, that was on purpose, by the way. Um, I had a fourth year and a fifth year, yeah. And I had a class with four students. There was four of us and the teacher. And uh, we had a small room, uh, you know, the... Corbin University used to be Western Baptist College, used to be a hospital. And, and so the, the actual hospital wings, the, uh, offices and the patient rooms were all turned into various things. And some of them were classrooms. So we had a little classroom where, where there was four of us in a row here about this far away from the teacher. And, and that's all the bigger the room would allow for. And, and this teacher liked to use a lot of, a lot of eye contact. And apparently, he didn't need to look at his notes too much. He was an excellent teacher. He taught, uh, he taught Bible history, as in Old Testament survey. He taught history of the ancient Near East. He taught philosophy. The only guy I've ever heard teach philosophy and could really make it understandable. A great teacher. But he also had an interesting habit, which was making up words. And uh, in the, I discovered that in my freshman year, and and you know, we would hear him say words and, and and we we understood what he was saying, which was the oddest thing, and we went and asked him about it, and he would make his own compound words. He would make words up and it just seemed to flow right in the conversation and and uh he uh he got things done uh in the classroom. So in honor of Mr. Calvin Odell, who was with the Lord, uh in my opinion, went to be with the Lord prematurely. I have coined a word today, and it's prayerification. <laughs> that kind of sounds like something George Bush would have said, doesn't it? <laughs> Prayerfication. You'll see why I've made it up when I get to it here shortly in the first part of the answer to the question, what is the godly way to give or receive Confrontation. The responses. This is the last sermon in the series. We've been looking at this topic of communication, conflict, and reconciliation. We've talked about all different facets of it, from how we speak to our attitudes that we go with. We've talked about why does God want us to go personally and then with two or three and then tell it to the church. We've looked at all of that in Matthew 18 and in many other texts. But today we want—we just want to talk on a very personal level of saying, if you are the person who is going, or if you are the person who is receiving this this input, how should you respond? What should be your your attitude, your behavior, your action? Follow as I read from Matthew 18, starting in verse. 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to even hear the church, then let him be to you like a heathen or tax collector. I really want to focus on that word here, if he hears you. And so, without doubt, we ask the question, what is the godly way to give or to receive a confrontation? Without doubt, the very first and most important concept is this, openness. Openness. And I think the the prime verse to go with that would be here. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let every man be swift to hear. We have the, you know, the old Chinese proverb, uh, listen twice, speak once, or whatever. Certainly based on this concept from the Bible. Swift to hear, slow to speak. I have four words that I think define openness when someone is coming to share a concern with you or when you are going to share. And, and the reason I, I, I'm talking about both aspects of it is communication and reconciliation is a two-way process. Frequently when we think, well, I have to go to somebody and talk to them, frequently there may be something we need to hear And so the instruction, be swift to hear, slow to speak. One of our great problems in all communication is that the only thing we're thinking about is what we're going to say, and if somebody else is talking, the only thing we're thinking about is what we're going to say to counteract what they're saying. And God says, listen. The reason we don't want to listen many times is because we don't want to hear we've done anything wrong. Believe me, I understand that. I hate to think that I've failed. I hate to think that I got something wrong. But if the goal of this whole process is for you and me to be what? Righteous then I need to go with open ears and an open mind. And so I've got four words that may help you with the concept of openness. The first word is the word reception. Are you being swift to hear or just being quiet while you think of what you're going to say next? You know, I, I learned this. In a better way, I would not say I have perfected it, but I learned it in a better way. Oh, 15 years ago, it just dawned on me, sitting at a at a group with a group of deacons talking about, you know, how we're going to work and what we're going to do and what are the plans for the church. I just thought, you know, why in the world should I ever think I know everything exactly right? And the guy across the table, he doesn't know anything. Is that possible? Is it possible that I've got it all nailed down and he doesn't know anything at all? If I really put it like that, I'm forced to say, well, no, we all have some of God's wisdom. Now, if that's true, if that's true, then when I'm listening, what should I be doing? Listening. <laughs> Hearing. That's right. Receiving. And and I'm going to give it to you early. And praying. Okay? Am I really receiving? Obviously there's great implication to husbands and wives when you're discussing something. Lord willing, as you grow in the Lord, you won't have arguments, but you'll always have discussions. And I, I say that seriously. In other words, you, you I think you can grow to the point where you, you, you disagree and you go back and forth, but you're mature enough to say, I'm going to stop talking now and I'm going I'm to think about it. Somehow we've got, some people get the idea that it's always godly to fall on your sword and just say, oh, okay, whatever you think. That is not godly. Because maybe you have the best wisdom. But it's also not godly to somehow with with the tone of voice or with the choice of words or whatever it is to just dominate to get your way. Reception. Are you being swift to hear? Number two, clarification. Clarification. What does that mean? That means when somebody comes to me and says, Pastor Dave, you did something that hurt my feelings. Then one of the questions I want to ask is, Could you explain that a little, or could you give me an example, because I really want to know what I need to change. Now, the reason I'm able to share that with you in very concrete terms is I've had to do that many, many times, (laughs) okay? And I don't like it, but I like it because I do think God has used those times to make me a better man. But if, if, if you're coming to criticize and, and you could say, you know, I saw this or you said that or you did this or you did that, then I can look at that and go, Oh, oh, I see how you could get that perception. And then I, I look at that and I say, Okay, I know how to change. Clarification. Newly married couples need to ask a lot of questions of clarification because you're blending two lives together when you are newly in a church there needs to be a lot of questions of clarification even if there isn't a conflict just to say now when you do this what does that mean or how do i understand this clarify you see this is still part of being open and receiving i'm not rejecting your wisdom I'm not rejecting the the concern that you have. I'm trying to really get my mind and heart around it and really understand the issue. And then number three, examination. Honest evaluation of the other person's perspective. The only reason we don't want to do this is pride. We do not want to be wrong. And as near as I can tell, that's a 100% problem because we're all descended from Adam, and Adam was tempted with pride from the evil one. An honest evaluation of the other person's perspective, searching the scriptures, examining the scripture, what is right, what is wrong. Sometimes people may, may criticize you and you say, wait a minute, I, I, I honestly think I was trying to do what the Bible says. And then, prayerification. You see, if I if I got T I O N on the end of every word, I got to have it on prayer too. Prayerification, yeah. Plus, you will never forget that, will you? You'll go out of here, and, and, and somebody'll say, what, "What happened? What happened this weekend?" My pastor had the stupidest word. You wouldn't believe it. What word is that? Prayerification. What's that mean? And there's a chance for you to share with your friends at work. What it means is this whole process of receiving or giving a concern, needs to be prayerified. It needs to be covered in prayer. If I'm going to hear what God wants me to hear from a brother or sister, I need to ask God to help me hear what He wants me to hear. Because above all, I do not want to be like the Pharisees, Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist, and he says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not one, there is not a, a human being, great, not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. Talking about their reception of Jesus. When they all heard him, they they all justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. The vast majority of people said, wow, this is a great thing. And the Pharisees said, not on my watch. And they clenched their teeth and said, we will not Genuine. Spiritual openness says, I need to listen to this confrontation and evaluate it in a godly way to make sure I don't miss something God is saying to me. See, that's the big question here. The question isn't even, is somebody else talking to me? The question is, is God talking to me? I read a story this week, and it's not this woman who was in the story. This is just an example. I read a story this week about a woman, a blind woman, who used a seeing eye dog, and uh, the person who was observing had seen her many times walking down the street, and she's walking down the sidewalk. Well, this particular day, there was a car parked across the sidewalk where it shouldn't have been and normally wasn't. And so as they're walking along the dog nudged her with the shoulder, which is the signal to there's something in the way. And the woman basically said, no, you're wrong. And, and gave him the command to go forward and the dog nudged again. This went on two or three times. And finally she disciplined the dog. And then she ran into the car. And then she got down and apologized to the dog. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees are walking along and Jesus goes, and they went, forget it, boom, the cross is a stumbling block to them. Are you going to be a humble, open person to God, realizing that he may speak to you through other people, or are you going to wait for the donkey to talk? And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, we looked at an Old Testament story where God was was trying to get a man to stop his behavior, and and the man was riding a donkey. And finally, after he beat the donkey two or three times, the donkey turned around and said, what's wrong with you? The donkey said, I saw the angel of the Lord, and he was going to kill you if I didn't stop. As hard as it is to listen to contrary input from a brother or sister, father, mother, whoever, as hard as that is to hear that input, it's worse to rebel and reject and go on and run into the car. God wants us to be open, open, Number two, what's the godly way to give or receive a confrontation? Number two, in the process of listening and receiving, we may find out we did wrong. We may find out we sinned. Okay, I understand that there are some issues that are issues of perception. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's just say that you find out, hey, I did wrong. Or maybe you know you did wrong. But you just haven't confessed it until this person came and confronted you. And so you need to apply what 1 John says. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This comes back to that attitude of openness. I should never take a posture which says I I have not done any wrong. That is a wrong posture. The posture should be I am a sinner saved by grace. It is possible I have done wrong. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we will admit, the word confess means to agree with God. If we will agree with God about our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar. We need to have an attitude of openness that says, when somebody brings up the wrong, I will confess it to God. In most attempts at reconciliation... Someone has done something wrong. While it isn't godly just to fall on your sword all the time, it is necessary to admit your wrong, first of all, to God when you notice it. Second of all, we need to apologize to man. And really, these, these two are interconnected, and they're two sides of the coin. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. Without doubt, a great, great story about Intervening in people's lives. First Samuel 25. Then Samuel died. Excuse, starting in verse 2. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep. 1 Samuel 25.2. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. This would be akin to the harvest time. You understand? You work all year in a farm and then you you make money at one point. Let's let's just call it that. Your shepherds were with you. Verse 7, I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. In other words, we didn't steal, even though we could have forced our way. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. Now, to help you understand, basically what happened was David had his own little army, and he provided protection for people just because they were in his area. And so he was their security detail, okay? Verse 9, So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and they waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men? when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels. I love that phrase. (laughs) They wheeled around and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man put on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. Harm is determined against your, our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys." And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under the cover of a hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. And his name means fool or foolishness. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now, this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. <clears throat> please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because the Lord fights the battles of because the Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found. In you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. And has appointed you as ruler over Israel that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. That's a courageous woman. Her husband died of fear. When he found out what happened, he went, "Ah," and literally died. And she became the wife of the king, the wife of David. Was David wronged by Nabal? Yes, yes. According to their custom in that day, he was genuinely wrong. Did he have a right to take revenge? Not really. Was he being driven by righteousness or anger as he put his sword on and got on his horse and headed for Nabal? And Abigail had the courage to come out and say, take the Put this sin onto me. And here's the gift that I'm giving, which my husband should have given. But she also said something very important. Listen, David, you're going to be the king. And you don't want to look back or have other people look back and say, look at David, he killed killed that guy, even though he didn't have the right to kill him. He just takes things by force. She had a word from the Lord for David. David changed his behavior and stayed on the righteous path because of her. He apologized. He said, you're right. I was wrong. That's what an apology is. I was wrong. And there's times when we need to do that. An apology will contain some or all of the following. First of all, it will contain an admission of guilt. I was wrong about this. I was wrong about that. Sometimes it will contain an admission of miscommunication. I did not mean to say that. I did not mean to communicate that. I'm sorry I gave that impression. You know, I don't know what came over me. And it will contain an assurance of what you intended to do. Now, if you intended to do wrong, then just apologize and let it go. You know, I just did wrong. I let my sin nature get the best of me, and that's wrong. No buts, no fours, no explanations. Just, it's wrong, and I'm sorry. We have to apologize. David was wise enough to hear God talking, not just Abigail. And that may well be the case in our confrontations. Number four, repentance. In Matthew 18, the featured word that is the result of confrontation in a positive sense is the word repentance. The word repent in the New Testament means to change your mind and and because of the change of mind to change your behavior. It's used sometimes in regard to salvation. We have to repent to come to salvation in this sense. If I am a worldly person who thinks Jesus was just an average man, I have to repent and realize, no, Jesus was the Son of God who took on human flesh. If I am a worldly person who thinks I'm really not that bad of a sinner and I don't need salvation, I have to repent and say, no, I am a sinner bound for hell without the sacrifice of Christ. And there's a whole series of things we have to we, we could just substitute the phrase, change our mind. But if we truly have changed our mind about Christ and the doctrine of salvation, we will believe in Christ. We will believe in our heart and confess with our mouth. Repentance is likewise for the rest of the Christian life. If I'm walking along in the Christian life and I think, well, it's, it's okay to lie sometimes. Then at some point, when I fully grasp God's truth, I say, no, it is never okay to lie. I repent. Similarly, in a confrontation, if, I, if somebody comes to me and says, you, you say, I'll give you a specific example from probably 17 years ago. A lady came to me after church. Maybe it wasn't even after church. I don't know. Sometimes she's mad at me. She said, you use the word gals. As in guys and gals. Okay. And I don't like it because I think it's demeaning to women. Okay. Maybe the feminism thing was a little hotter back then than it is now. I certainly didn't mean to demean women. Okay. I did not mean to communicate to you that I think less of you than I think of your husband. But for me, the repentance was, I don't need to use that word. There are plenty of words for women in the English language. I don't need to use that word. And if that word is is a problem and a stumbling block to her, I'll I'll take it away. Now, I, I would grant you, you could debate that. And some of you will come up to me after church and say, oh, that's a stupid thing or whatever. And some of you will think, no, that's really good. And... Here's the point. If you recognize something you've done that's been hurtful or sinful, and you really recognize it, you will repent and go the other way. You will change your behavior. And that's possible because we are all new creatures in Christ. And if we go to God and say, God, I'm sorry, I have sinned, I've done wrong, I've hurt this brother, I've hurt this sister, please help me to change my behavior. We can change our behavior. That's what repentance is. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, Now I rejoice not that you are made sorry, but that your sorrow over what you did led to a change, to repentance. For you are made sorry in a godly manner, that you might not suffer loss from us in anything. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death because the sorrow of the world is just, I'm sorry I got caught. The receiving side of apology and repentance is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And I think the best summary verse on forgiveness is this right here. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. I don't know who you feel compassion for. When I look at uh, my little granddaughter, Kylie, I just, you know, want to do whatever I can to help her. I feel compassion for her, I feel tender hearted toward her. Now, the day will come when I feel some other things. And I will. Don't worry about that. I'll spoil her, but I'll help her along the other way, too. You know, tenderheartedness comes from saying, how has God forgiven me? How, how often, of how many things, how, how repetitive is my sin And to look up and say, wow, God has forgiven me over and over and over and over and over and over and over. How can I look at my brother and my sister and have a hard heart? Forgiving like God in Christ forgave. How often does God forgive us? Always. Every time we confess. Remember these words? Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven, but 70 times seven. And Jesus was not suggesting that we count. He picked a number that was so high, most people couldn't keep track of it. How often does God forgive us? Every time, always, every time we confess, every time we come and say, hey, I've done wrong. Secondly, what does forgiveness mean to God? It means pardon. It means pardon. Pardon. It means God quits holding sin against us. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Now, if you're a good theologian, and I ask you the question, can God forget? The answer is? The answer is no. No. God knows all things. He knows before you're going to sin, when you're going to sin. And He knows after the fact. But what can He do for your sin? If this is your sin, and it's on you, He can take it and remove it far from you, as far from the east is from the west. Why did God not say north and south? Because east and west are continuous. You never reach the poles like you do the north and the south. It's continue. it's removed. Now, here's the key thing. So, what does God see when He looks at you? He sees the blood of Christ. He sees you in righteousness. If He didn't, when you died, your destination would be conditioned upon the right at the moment of death. Are you righteous or sinful? Perhaps you'd have to come up with a system like one major church is where where when you die you go off to a place to get checked out and scrubbed up before you're ready for heaven. Okay, But that's not it. When you believe in Christ, when you say Christ is the Savior, I am the sinner, and you believe in Him, God takes your sin away in terms of its penalty. There's no more penalty for sin. Now, is there still sin on me day by day as I I make bad choices? Yes. Do I need to confess that? Yes. Will God remove that from me completely? Yes, when I see Him. But right now, I am penalty free. That's what it means for God to pardon us. Now, if that's the way God forgives, and if we're supposed to copy God's forgiveness if we're supposed to imitate God's forgiveness then how are we supposed to see people in our lives when they have sinned against us if we have forgiven that's how we should see them over here without that sin on them we've pardoned them if we are bringing up their sin constantly we have not forgiven We certainly have not forgiven like God forgives. God doesn't bring your sin up again. I became friends with a man in an organization I served in the South Seattle area. He was not a believer, but he liked me and my service to his organization, and I enjoyed him. He was kind of a young, old curmudgeon. And uh, I enjoyed him, and would visit him at his workplace and in his home. And uh, he helped me, but he was a mechanic. He helped me with some things on my car, and I helped him with some things in his marriage, tried to. After several years of relationship, he asked me to do something in this organization. He said, there's a problem here. Would you address it? And I looked at that, and I thought, yeah, I think that's the kind of thing I might be able to address. And so I said, yes, I will address that he he wanted me to talk to the person in charge about a problem the person in charge had. I'll just say that. You know, and I thought about that and I prayed about it and I realized the Lord just said, "No, Dave. Your job is to help this guy bear with the problem. Your job is to help this guy with his problem if he comes to you. But for you to get involved essentially in a personnel matter is not your place in that organization." And so I went back to my friend and I said, "Friend, I'm sorry. I cannot do this. I've prayed about it, thought about it. It's not my place. And he said, well, I think people are going to look at you differently. That was the end of our relationship. Forevermore, that was me to him. I mean, that was it. I mean, he, he, he was cordial to me when, when we had to be around each other, but that was it. Now... If that's how you live, I want you to know something, friend. You're living like an unbeliever. That is not how believers act. Believers forgive because we've been forgiven. If God treated you like that, you would be in bad shape. Because I'm guessing that if you're like me, you let him down once in a while. We have got to be forgiving like God, not forgiving like the world. Number six, restoration, the renewing of relationship. Matthew 18 says, if your brother repents, you've gained your brother back. When we conducted our study of Second Timothy a few months ago, we noted the difficulty that happened between Paul and Barnabas over Mark. Who apparently failed in his commitment to ministry from the way we 're not told exactly, but from the way it 's written, it would appear that uh, Timoth, or that uh, excuse me that uh, Mark became undependable or independable, and so paul paul said, look i i 'm running all over the world trying to trying to do this ministry, and if this guy's going to bail on me every so often can 't have that i can 't depend on him and He and Barnabas disagreed, so Barnabas took Mark and went one way. Paul took Silas, and went the other way. Um, it would appear that Barnabas discipled Mark and that there was restoration. And there was restoration in the relationship with Paul because here's what we hear right at the end of Paul's life Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. With Paul, the door of restoration was wide open. He knew the forgiveness of God, and he was more than willing to extend that to others. True forgiveness issues forth in restoration of the relationship. There's one more step in this process that we have to talk about, unfortunately, Because God says, if you have done your best, if you've had a godly attitude, if you've communicated in a godly way, you've confronted in a godly way, you've gone through all these steps, and yet this person will not respond in a godly way. that the last step, according to Matthew 18, verse 17, is to remove them from the fellowship of the church. Matthew eighteen seventeen. if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. God says here and elsewhere in the New Testament that if a person who claims to be a believer will not submit to God's word through the church, that we are to remove them from the membership and we are to change our interaction with them. In other words, we're not not supposed to just kind of keep going on like everything's fine and I know you're living in sin, but I'm not going to worry about that. We're not to act as though everything is okay because it isn't okay. We often struggle to do this because we see our own weaknesses. We see our own failures to God and so we think, well, I I can't do that to them because I'm not that perfect. That's a genuine twinge of, of compassion but it is not hypocrisy to act on God's word. Should we respond to our own failings by another failure, that is the failure to obey God in this matter? No. The answer is to get ourselves right with God and then to judge rightly because God has instructed us to do this. The question, I want, the last question I want to ask is this. What happens when we sever fellowship with a believer? Well, the first thing is this. The church maintains righteousness. If somebody is living in sin and we put up with it, then we are establishing a culture of sin. 1 Corinthians 5, your glorying is not good. These people, remember, had a man who was living in a sexual relationship with his, either his stepmother or his father's second wife or whatever you want to call it. Your glorying is not good. And they wouldn't judge it. They wouldn't deal with it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, if you're not a baker, I've got to talk to you about yeast. When you make bread or things that, you know, bread-type products, you put a little yeast in there, and it causes the whole batch of bread to raise up and be nice and light. That's what he's talking about. Something that gets into and affects the whole lump. Therefore, purge out. The old leaven, the sin, that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover of sacrifice for us. If we allow public sin in the body, we will develop a culture of sin. Now, now, I'm not so naive as to think that putting one sinner out of the fellowship will keep the entire body pure. I know that we all have struggles on a daily basis. And I said all, not all of you. That's all of us. I know that. If you're like me, sin and confession are regular parts of your life. None of us lives perfectly. But if we allow sin publicly to be in the body of Christ, pretty soon we will be the Corinthian church. And it'll be like, well, yeah, I know that's going on, but, you know, what can you do? Well, and you know who's really going to suffer? The people who are going to suffer are the ones who will not come to Christ because of our behavior. And the people who suffer will be your children who grow up thinking, as Kim Ham talked to us about the word, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Not really. Because look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. We've got to be people of the book, and unfortunately, that means there will be times when we have to say, this isn't right. Number two, what happens when we sever fellowship with a believer? The sinner comes under the oppression of Satan. Wow, that's harsh. In the 1 Corinthians situation, Paul said, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What's he talking about? I believe essentially he's saying, by putting somebody out of the church fellowship, they are living in the domain of the world, which is controlled by Satan. And if they have rebelliously chosen sin then they are living in the world system and ultimately they will reap the result of that in some negative way in their life. Even so, God says they're still going to be saved, but there's going to be hardship in their life. Now, I I just want to say to you, in case you are misunderstanding me today, do I want to put anybody under the oppression of Satan? Does that is that a happy occasion? Not at all. You're all real serious right now and that's good. Cuz this is a real serious thing and we need to take it that way. What we really need to take seriously is the fact that God says he is serious about righteousness and unity, and love, and all of those things. And this is how serious he is. Number three, the sinner comes under the judgment of God. When we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Here's the truth. We are functioning within the body of Christ, and in particular, um This verse here is in the context of the Lord's Supper. And the reason that I say to you every time we have the Lord's Supper, if you're not right with the Lord, you need to confess your sin, is because if you come to this with sin in your heart, and you partake of this knowingly having sin in your life, you put yourself under the judgment of God. I don't need to judge you. I don't want to judge you. God says, if you don't take this seriously, I will judge you. But he also says, and then in 1 Corinthians 5, when we put somebody out into the world, they come under the same kind of judging that the world comes under by God. Again, that's how serious God takes this. But here's the good news. The sinner has the opportunity to see his or her sin. Paul talked about these two guys who are heretics. He said, of whom are hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme or to say wrong things about God. There is an opportunity to see your sin when God, when the church puts you out. In 2 Thessalonians, if anybody does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. The goal here is never to to punish. The goal is change. Because what can happen in this process is the sinner may repent and be restored to the church. We have evidence of that in 2 Corinthians 2. We don't know for certain if this is talking about the same man of 1 Corinthians 5, but it's talking about somebody in their church who they disciplined. If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary you ought to rather forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. The goal of this whole process is for people to be right with God and to walk right with God. A couple of weeks ago I think in the maybe in the conclusion of my sermon, I mentioned the need for a brake job, and that I didn't trust. Uh, I don't trust some mechanical repair places, not all, but some because they are about money, not really about me. And so, after church, Mike Anderson came up and said, "Hey, me and the youth group, we'll, we're youth group boys, we'll do your brakes for you." And I thought, hmm. Love you, Mike. Honestly, what I felt was I felt shamed because I felt like I was being lazy. So I called up my friend that owns the auto parts store and got the parts and got the rotors turned. And sure enough, I found more there than I thought was there. And it would have probably cost an arm and a leg at the place I was thinking of taking it. Got the brakes all back together. You know, those of you that know a brake job, at the end, you have to get the air out of the, the lines that, with the brake fluid and Procedure for that and I've done this for years and so I did all that boy the brakes felt kind of mushy You know not real real good and strong so I went to uh, My favorite mechanic that I trust and I said hey uh, Do you have time to do this? No, I don't we said but here's the technique and he explained it to me and it was a new technique new process and I thought okay, so I went home jacked it up took the wheels off and did that process and Sure enough got them back where they're supposed to be Really don't want the brakes to be subpar. Really want the brakes to work just like they're supposed to work every time. Really makes you feel uneasy if you're driving down the road and the brakes don't work. You know, I've never, I've only had marginal experiences with that, never a cataclysmic one, and I don't want to. I want relationships to work right, too. There's nothing more uncomfortable than having a relationship in your life that's not working. You know, this week, somebody came to me and said, years ago, you said this, and it hurt me deeply. And I just said, boy, I'm so glad you came. Either I had said something wrong or given the wrong impression, one or the other, but something did not work, and I apologized, and and she said, I accept your apology. And I thought, how great is that? For her, but also for me, because if I had known that that was a problem, I would not have run with that poor quality of relationship going on. Oh, my goodness. There's nothing better than smooth-running relationships in the church, in the home, in the workplace. And unfortunately, there's going to be difficulties, and we've got to take care of it. And I hope you will, because it honors God, and it blesses you. Father, help us. We are all sinners who have, most of us who have been saved. And so we have the potential to change, but it, we struggle. Oh, Lord, help us to do the right things. Help us to speak in a godly way. Help us to listen in a godly way. Help us to apologize. Help us to forgive, to repent. Help us to do all of these things you want us to do so that we can know your joy in our lives. I pray in Christ's name, amen.